President Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID stimulus package is now law. And there's more to come. Economic stimulus packages for infrastructure, environment, and education. Did you know that the Democratic Party used to be in favor of small government, more concerned about balancing the budget than how to spend borrowed money, and more concerned about the federal government doing too much than doing too little? Hey there, news peelers. Today is Friday, March 19th, 2021, and this is Adele with the Peel.News. Once a week, we select a news item and peel the history behind it to gain perspective from the past. And oh boy, sometimes history gives us a good laugh, sometimes it offends. And sometimes, it just shocks. Like, did that really happen? I'm telling you, you can't make up some of these stuff that happened in our past. So grab a cup of coffee, or your favorite drink, or both, and let's get into it. On Thursday, March 11th, President Biden signed the $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief bill. The next day, during a Rose Garden celebration of the bill's passage, he declared, help is on the way. He claimed that his stimulus package, the American Rescue Plan, delivers on his promise to the American people of putting them, the working Americans, first. And then, <laughs> as if attempting to spoil the Peel.News' topic for this episode, he said, this is the first time since the Johnson administration, and maybe even before that, to begin to change the paradigm. Jason L. Riley, a Wall Street Journal opinion columnist and a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, agrees with President Biden's assessment of the historic scope of this stimulus package. but. He puts a different spin on it. He says, This package is arguably the largest expansion of the welfare state since Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. Regardless of your view on what Mr. Biden's COVID stimulus package is all about, we find a paradigm shift that Mr. Biden refers to quite intriguing. By the change in paradigm, Mr. Biden was distinguishing his democratic economic platform of the bottom-up building of America versus the Republican policy of trickle-down economics. Remember this. Remember the change in paradigm that Mr. Biden referred to, because we're going to return to it. We're going to talk about how and when Democrats changed their paradigm, specifically economic paradigm and relief programs. But before we get there, let's spend a minute on colossal stimulus packages that already are demanding Democrats' attentions and, I think, distressing them. They include long-term investments in infrastructure, clean energy, and education. 
These packages may be distressing Democrats because, well, because like everything else in politics, they need money, gobs of it, trillions and trillions. Where will Democrats find the money to pay for these gigantic programs? Will they raise taxes? Will they borrow more money? With respect to raising taxes, some Democrats, including Senator Elizabeth Warren, propose a graduated ultra-millionaires tax. 2% tax for those with a net worth between $50 million to $1 billion. There's also an added 1% surtax for those that are worth more than a billion. I should add, President Biden hasn't endorsed Senator Warren's wealth tax. With respect to borrowing money, Treasury Secretary Ms. Janet Yellen has said that the U.S. borrowing costs are manageable for now and that controlling deficit spending is something that's on the horizon in this administration. So at least there is a hint of concern about reducing our annual deficit. This made us think, was the Democratic Party always the party known for big government and big spending? And what did the Democratic Party traditionally think of our ballooning national debt, which is now the highest in our history since the aftermath of World War II? According to usdebtclock.org, the U.S. national debt stands above $28 trillion, trillion with a T. This is about 130% of our GDP, meaning we spend more money than we make. On second thought, forget about what I said. Don't visit that site that I just rattled off here. It'll depress you. Just stay with me as I peel the history behind this news. Prior to explaining the paradigm shifts in the Democratic Party's spending and budget ethos, it behooves us to appreciate that it took significant, significant political power to bring about those economic paradigm shifts. The sort of political power that not every president can yield. Two presidents that had such a power were Andrew Jackson and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR. Andrew Jackson founded the Democratic Party, and a century later, Roosevelt, FDR, was the president that implemented significant paradigm shifts in the Democratic Party's economic platforms, policies that stood in sharp contrast to Jackson's economic policies. So, when we say significant political power, what are we exactly talking about? Well, let's start with Jackson. Jackson was president for two terms. In both terms, he won clear majorities. 56% of the popular vote in 1828 and 54% in 1832, which are both higher majority percentages than Mr. Biden's 2020 win, which was a little over 51%. But that doesn't truly tell the story of how Jackson was a powerful force to be reckoned with. First, there was a sheer force of his personality. In his younger days, <laughs> he was a daring man, a talented and assertive lawyer who was known to occasionally settle disputes for duels or, or, or threats of duels. And as president, he defended himself against an assassin by attacking him with his cane. <laughs> Davy Crockett, the real Davy Crockett from the Alamo, was there at the scene. 
He had to intervene to prevent President Jackson from beating the life out of his hapless assassin with his cane. And, and this story nicely dovetails with Jackson's reputation as a national war hero, which was unmatched since George Washington's presidency. Jackson was the hero who, through sheer will, with some U.S. Army regulars, but mostly volunteers, sort of a ragtag army, if you will, defended New Orleans in 1815 from a far superior and superbly experienced British force. Most people that visit New Orleans, like me, have seen his statue on horseback in the French Quarter. And just three years after he successfully defended New Orleans against the British, in 1818, he brazenly conquered Spanish Florida for the United States. Now it makes sense why we call Jacksonville, Florida, Jacksonville, right? But get this, Jackson's military venture into Florida was controversial because many claimed that it was not, not sanctioned by James Monroe, who was then the President of the United States. <laughs> so, so Jackson was out there on his own conquering lands for America. Now you get what I mean when I talk about strong-willed personality? Also, Jackson won the presidency in a year that enfranchisement of white men drastically increased due to changes to voting laws in the 1828 presidential election. For example, in 1828, more than a million white American men voted. That's more than three times as many white men who got to vote in the 1824 election, just four years earlier. As a side note, <laughs> George Washington, who was elected unanimously twice, got less than 50,000 votes each time. 50,000. By comparison, about 155 million Americans voted in 2020. So, Jackson was a popular president, and the White House would support from a broader spectrum of the American people, well, white men, than previous U.S. presidents. Also, Jackson was the founder of a new movement, the Democratic Party, the party of the common man against the corrupt aristocracy of entrenched political parties and bureaucracies. And finally, Jackson was kind of a comeback kid. A lot of people were rooting for him. Several high-profile candidates, including Henry Clay, um, John Quincy Adams, and Andrew Jackson himself, competed in the 1824 presidential election. This is before he became president, four years earlier. Although Jackson won the most popular votes and the most electoral votes in the 1824 election, he was still shy of the required electoral college majority. So, the responsibility of choosing the next president was kicked up to the House of Representatives. In that chamber, he was denied the presidency by deal-making between John Quincy Adams and the Speaker of the House, Henry Clay. John Quincy Adams, the son of our second president, John Adams, became president, although he had less popular votes and less electoral votes than Jackson. Jackson famously labeled this as the corrupt bargain. And four years later, with fury and fire and vehemence, he beat John Quincy Adams for the White House. So similar to President Trump, President John Quincy Adams is another president to have lost a popular vote twice, in his case, to the same person. 
Anyway, all of these factors make Jackson a larger-than-life personality. As president, he brazenly vetoed more legislation than all of his predecessors combined, and this was a big deal at the time. His vetoes were not necessarily based on his belief that a certain legislation was unconstitutional. No, he started something totally new. He vetoed bills because he disagreed with their policies. No president had ever done that before. And his free use of the veto power and his broad appeal to the masses prompted his detractors to declare that Jackson <laughs> was mad for power. One headline read, The King Upon a Throne, The People in the Dust. In our website, we show a caricature of Jackson in a kingly crown with a scepter and a regal robe that was published in newspapers back then. For years after his presidency, the national agenda and four of the next six presidents, until Lincoln, were Democrats and essentially Jackson's protégés. Almost a hundred years later, FDR, Roosevelt, was another American personality that could bring about major changes, a paradigm shift. As a Roosevelt, he already enjoyed some prestige and power. In addition to his family's fame and fortune in New York, he married Eleanor Roosevelt, the niece of Theodore Roosevelt. At their wedding, Teddy, then a sitting U.S. president, walked Eleanor up the aisle. FDR worked up the Democratic Party political ladder, um, taking positions in offices that, interestingly, Teddy Roosevelt had taken before him, although they were from different parties, obviously. When polio paralyzed FDR from the waist down, he rallied his towering ambitions and after some time became the governor of New York. This is sort of similar to Governor Abbott of Texas now, who is in a wheelchair. But back then, FDR tried to hide his handicap. And by the way, there were no handicap laws or accommodations, no like handicap ramps or stalls or what have you. But what more than anything gave FDR his political power was circumstance. He ran for the presidency in 1932. And by the 1932 presidential election, the Great Depression had reached its most severe. Its devastation was visible everywhere in our society. And the ever-increasing grimness of the Great Depression, and we've seen, we've seen this in movies or documentaries, was matched only by President Hoover's increasing unpopularity. <laughs> Poor President Hoover. Just weeks before the 1932 election, when he was running for office again, he received a letter from a man in Illinois saying, just vote for Roosevelt and make it unanimous. FDR won the 1932 election with 57% of the votes and 472 electoral votes out of 531. By contrast, President Biden got 51% of the popular vote and 306 electoral votes out of 538. Uh, by the way, an explanation here. The difference between the total electoral votes then, 531, and now, 538, is that Alaska and Hawaii were not states back then. And, and also, I don't think Washington, D.C. back then had electoral votes either. Anyway, the 1932 election was a huge deal. First, it made FDR the first Democratic president in 80 years to win the presidency by majority of the popular votes rather than a plurality of the popular votes. Second, it was a total turning point 
in White House politics. Up to then, only three of the past 10 presidential elections were won by Democrats. Going forward from 1932, when FDR took the office, to 1968, when Lyndon Johnson decided not to run again and Nixon came into the White House, Democrats won 7 out of 10 presidential elections. Third, it was also a total, complete turning point in congressional politics. Before 1932, Democrats had held a majority in only four of the 20 previous Congresses. After 1932 and up to 1968, Democrats enjoyed majority in both legislative houses for 17 out of 19 congressional terms. Yeah, FDR's election in 1932 changed America. And here's a crazy thing. FDR's 1932 landslide win pales in comparison to his 1936 total, total blowout. In 1936, he won 60.8% of the popular vote and 523 of 531 electoral votes. <laughs> Eight more electoral votes and his electoral college win would have been unanimous, similar to George Washington's. A map of the 1936 election in our website practically shows all of the U.S. in Democratic blue. It's crazy. And here's a number that may help it sink in for you. In 1936, FDR received 217, 217 more electoral votes than Biden in 2020. With his power and four terms in office, well, less than four terms, he died three months into his fourth term. With his full three terms, let's say it that way, FDR vetoed 635 bills, more than any other U.S. president. And FDR's legacy dominated American politics for years. Lyndon Johnson's Great Society that we mentioned earlier in the news section of this podcast was no doubt inspired by FDR's New Deal programs and big government policies. Now that we better appreciate the power and personalities of these two giant presidents, let's see how they shifted the paradigm of the Democratic Party in opposite directions. This podcast is available on your device, on Spotify, Apple, Google, and other podcast apps. You can also listen to us online on anger.fm. Subscribe and follow our podcast. And don't keep us all to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. With the strength of his presidential power, Jackson implemented two policies that are anathema to the Democratic Party today. He effectively shuttered the equivalent of the Federal Reserve Bank back then. And are you ready for it? He paid off the U.S. debt. No, I don't mean he balanced the annual budget. I'm not talking about our annual deficit. I mean he paid off our debt. We had zero zilch debt. And get this, he did it while spending more on internal improvements such as roads and canals than all of the previous U.S. presidents combined. <laughs> let's see if Mr. Biden can do that with his stimulus package. Heck, let's see if any president can do that. The second bank of the United States, which was in Philadelphia, was a behemoth financial corporation that effectively regulated the nation's credit and currency. 
As I said, it was effectively the nation's Federal Reserve, before we had our Federal Reserve. President Jackson attacked it because he didn't believe all this power should be in the hands of one bank. He also didn't like banking, stocks, and stock market bubbles like the one we're in right now. Dow is zooming above 32,000. For those of you who follow the stock market, you can relate to Jackson's aversion towards big banks. One wrong word from Chairman Jerome Powell and stocks go tumbling down and fortunes vanish within minutes. Anyway, Jackson's fight against the powerful Nicholas Biddle, the president of the Second Bank of the United States, was epic. Democrats called Jackson's attacks on the bank a second declaration of independence. Republicans, however, believed it was a dangerous proposition to rid the country of the very institution that regulated the nation's finance. By the way, by Republicans, I don't mean the modern Republican Party. I mean Henry Clay, his Whig Party, and other similar parties that later coalesced into the modern Republican Party under Lincoln. In the end, Jackson won, and the bank's charter was not renewed in 1832. And after several years, the once powerful bank closed, virtually leaving our nation without a central bank until 1913. By the way, many claim that this directly led to the Panic of 1837, which some historians believe was the real first Great Depression, almost a hundred years prior to FDR's Great Depression of the 1930s. The Panic of the 1837 was, was, was horrendous. Charles Dickens hinted about it in his famous story, A Christmas Carol. Not to worry, we're not in danger of any president shutting down the Federal Reserve. If anything, we're in danger of presidents relying too much on the Federal Reserve's free money. The nation's debt was another monster that Jackson tackled head-on. He believed in a limited government system, which sounds like more like modern Republicans than Democrats, right? To Jackson, debt was almost a failure when his pretty much incompetent and irresponsible son died with mounting debt, Jackson saw it as his duty to pay off his son's debt. As Robert Remini explains in his book, The Life of Andrew Jackson, paying off his dead son's debt was a matter of family pride and honor. And that's how Jackson felt about the nation's debt. In his first inaugural address, he stated, the expenditures should be distributed regard being first paid to the national debt. By the way, that, that's the way they talked. I didn't read this incorrectly. What Jackson meant is that when we spend money, our first priority should be paying off the national debt. Jackson's debt payment program would eventually be called Reform, Retrenchment, and Economy which meant reducing the size and operation of the government to decrease government expenditures and pay off the nation's debt. This was a complete opposite of John Quincy Adams, his nemesis, who along with uh, Henry Clay, as I told you before, the person that helped him uh, in the corrupt deal to become president in 1824, believed in the American system. The American system is similar to our modern belief that internal improvements should be paid for by the federal government. Obviously, Jackson opposed it. 
There were two philosophical questions of the age back then and for decades since. First, should the federal government even be involved in internal improvements? Jackson's answer was only if the internal improvement was truly a necessary national matter, which meant that he approved interstate projects but vetoed those that did not cross state lines. The second question was, should the federal government incur debt to pay for these projects? Jackson's answer was a definite no, because he feared that debt put power in the hand of creditors. And here's a striking resemblance to our time. In the 1830s, U.S. creditors were foreigners, mainly British merchants and banking houses. In the last two decades, especially in the 2000s, our creditors were foreigners too, especially China. Jackson personally scrutinized every major internal improvement decision. <laughs> that would be like President Biden pouring over the details of the more than 100,000 pages of his coronavirus stimulus package. By the way, according to the Wall Street Journal, the word stimulus does not even appear once in the coronavirus relief package. Hmm, weird. Anyway, for every expenditure, Jackson would remind the Congress that the Treasury didn't have sufficient money for their projects and that he would not borrow a cent except in cases of absolute necessity. According to another Jackson biographer, John Meacham, in his book, The American Lion, when one congressman of his own party begged Jackson not to veto a spending bill, Jackson asked him if Congress was willing to raise taxes to pay for the project. The, con <laughs> the congressman answered, no, raising taxes would be even worse than your veto. Anyway, um, the installment um, of the last installment of the national debt was paid in January 1835. The national debt at that time was, are you, are you ready for this? Was $24 million. It was paid off with $60 million from revenues, including the sale of federal lands, and $8 million that the U.S. had sold in the stocks it owned in the second bank of the United States before it went bust. $24 million in national debt. Kind of sounds funny, doesn't it? Exactly 100 years after Jackson's first inauguration, another president, similar to President Jackson, was obsessed with balancing the budget, with keeping the federal government small. This president was a highly accomplished man who would have been remembered in American history even if he was not a president. But he did become president, and his presidency became infamous in our history. But unlike Jackson, this president that came a century later was not a Democrat. You see, there was a paradigm shift. Balanced budget and small government was no longer on Democrats' agenda. It had become a Republican platform. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. And if you are, please consider supporting the show for as little as 99 cents a month, which can be canceled anytime. Start your support by clicking the support link right here in the detailed description for this episode, or click the support button in our podcast profile on anchor.fm.
Herbert Hoover was a highly accomplished businessman, politician, and diplomat before his presidency. And like Jackson, as president, Hoover was concerned with balancing the budget. But unlike Jackson, Hoover was a Republican. Balancing the budget may have made sense and even been feasible during the roaring 1920s. In fact, Hoover became president in 1928, when the 1920s roaring party, the Great Gatsby and all, was super hot, when it was at the height of the stock market boom. Then, in 1929, the stock market crashed. From the time of the crash to the presidential election of 1932, Hoover continued to worry about balancing the budget when he should have worried about freely spending to put Americans back to work. At one point, Hoover even increased taxes in the midst of an economic meltdown. And here's something else. Ready for it? Hoover also didn't think the national government should even get involved. Imagine uh, President Obama during the 2008 Great Recession saying, oh, no, sorry, guys, the national government should not get involved in fixing the economy. Hoover believed that the acts of charity belonged to the local level between individuals and families. He disfavored nationalization or institutionalization of charitable works. Nowadays, we nationalize and institutionalize the heck out of everything. Hoover and Roosevelt were ideological opposites. Interestingly, they both believed that their 1932 election posed the biggest challenge to America since the 1860 election, which is sort of ominous because in 1860, Lincoln was uh, elected to the White House and the Civil War ensued shortly after. Anyway, here's an important point. In 1932, Hoover and the Republicans lost the election more than FDR and the Democrats won it. And as soon as FDR took office in 1933, big government and big national and institutional programs came in. According to the National Bureau of Economic Research, the total expenditure of the federal government in 1929, when Hoover was president, was $3.2 billion. <laughs> I know, that sounds a little bit funny. Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or Warren Buffett can, could have paid all the expenditure of the federal government in 1929 and still have tens of billions of dollars left over for themselves. And by the way, I want to make sure we all understand this. We're talking about the entire expenditure of the federal government in 1929, $3.2 billion. But get this, by comparison, FDR's relief programs for unemployment, infrastructure, and supporting farmers from 1933 to 1941 was $27 billion, which averages to $3.37 billion per year more than Hoover's total government expenditure in 1929. Also, between 1933 and 1939, the federal government distributed $16.5 billion of non-repayable grants. Most of these relief programs were, were part of the New Deal's alphabet super programs, programs like the NRA. And no, by NRA, I'm not referring to the National Rifle Association. I'm referring to the National Recovery Administration. Incidentally, 
the ideas and implementations of these programs came mostly from Frances Perkins, FDR Secretary of Labor and the first female member of a U.S. cabinet. If you get a chance, uh, by the way, be sure to read her superbly written biography by Kirsten Downey. Its title is The Woman Behind the New Deal, The Life of Frances Perkins, FDR Secretary of Labor, and His Moral Conscience. Suddenly, the government was involved in spending for farms, all sorts of reliefs, home mortgages, lending to states and local governments, public works, roads, housing, and urban renewal programs, and the list goes on and on. And here's something else that really piqued our interest. Before 1936, which was FDR's second election, state governments determined the level of the New Deal grants and their allocations to counties within the states. But after the 1936 election, the one that was a total wipeout for FDR, federal government got involved in state-level allocations of funds as well. All of these spending and direct involvement was an entirely new role for the federal government. Stay with me as we get into the perspective. According to the National Bureau of Economic Research, FDR won the 1932 election because of Hoover's failures. But the 1936 and 1940 votes for FDR reflected his economic policies. I find this intriguing. Did Mr. Biden win the 2020 election or did Mr. Trump lose it? Peggy Noonan, a renowned Wall Street Journal opinion columnist whom I've had the pleasure of reading for gosh, two decades now, answers this question uh, on, on November 19th, 2020, shortly after the election. Quote, imagine if he'd acted even remotely normal in his first term, if he'd had the intellectual, emotional, and the spiritual resources to moderate himself, to act respectably. Heck, imagine if he'd worn a mask. He might have won. End quote. Ms. Noonan is not far off the mark. Not at all. After all, 2020 was not a landslide win for Mr. Biden. Mr. Trump did get 74 million votes, 7 million less than Mr. Biden. It's important to note that Mr. Biden and Democrats in Congress have pushed through the coronavirus recovery package along party lines. This partisan way of legislation and and sort of economic planning and economic relief programs may even get worse. According to the New York Times, for the next economic stimulus packages, such as those that we mentioned, um, infrastructure, education, and environment, which inevitably will cost trillions of dollars, precipitously increasing our deficit and our national debt, Democrats are girding for a no-compromise approach in which they will pass what they deem necessary. Basically, according to the New York Times, Democrats now believe that President Obama was too cautious and too deferential to Republicans when he passed his economic stimulus packages back in 2008-2009. I guess the perspective is, where do Democrats think they're going to get the power to do all of this without Republican support? 
Mr. Biden does not have Jackson's or FDR's presidential power. He doesn't have their mandates. He also is not President Johnson living through the benefits of economic good times of the 1960s and FDR's still fresh legacy of the New Deal. As a reminder, Democrats actually lost seats in the House of Representatives. As for the Senate, Mr. Biden has only 50 senators on his side. Well, 50 Democratic senators, let's put it that way. By comparison, according to the U.S. Senate's website, after the 1932 election, Roosevelt, FDR, had a 59 majority in the Senate. After the 1936 election, Democrats had a 76 majority in the Senate. That is 26 more senators than Biden has in his party in the Senate now. But even then, back then, in the 30s, with all that power, it wasn't a smooth sailing for President Roosevelt. It was around 1937, and FDR was frustrated with all the challenges to his New Deal recovery program. So he complained to one of his White House advisors about how he was tired of kissing people's asses, <laughs> I'm using his words here, to get him to do what they ought to be doing anyway. And here's another perspective from the Wall Street Journal. What if Democrats' programs fail? When President Reagan pushed through expensive programs, unprecedented tax cuts, and at the same time, significantly boosting our military spending, he had the support of 60 House Democrats. But apparently, Democrats are now willing to forego Republican support. The question of what if Democrats fail is an important one. Because if they do fail, they will own it. The conclusion of a 2012 report from the National Bureau of Economic Research provides some cautionary lessons from FDR's New Deal. Quote, Voters are willing to reward policymakers when their efforts bear fruit. But when economic distress lingers, the same programs serve as a glaring reminder to voters that the incumbent has failed to bring the solutions promised, end quote. Of course, the jury is still out on President Biden's relief programs. It's not even 100 days into his uh, presidency. His current and future economic stimulus packages are not history yet, so we can't discuss their successes or lack thereof. God willing, they'll succeed. But before we close, does it feel like we're missing something in this perspective? Something big, like the proverbial elephant in the room big. We are missing something big. We haven't mentioned the U.S. Supreme Court. In the 1930s, it was as if the U.S. Supreme Court was stuck in the old Jacksonian democratic ethos of small government and constitutional restrictions on the federal government's interference with business, such as a national minimum wage, which Mr. Biden wants to increase now, and which was introduced by FDR during the New Deal. We actually did previously covered FDR's minimum wage story in a two-part podcast. Those two episodes <laughs> were quite dramatic. JFK's father was mentioned. There were threats of communism and potential impeachment of a U.S. cabinet member. FDR's court-packing gambit. The switch in time that saved nine. You got to check that one out. Uh, Justice Scalia actually made comments about that. And the saucy language of a Supreme Court justice who huffed and puffed <laughs> and said he would never resign as long as that crippled son of a bitch is in the White House. 
spoiler alert here, that Justice did resign while FDR, the crippled son of a bitch that he was referring to, was still in the White House. Of course, you can listen to the whole story in our podcast. But the point is, the third perspective is that six out of nine Supreme Court justices on the bench now are appointed by Republican presidents, three of them by Mr. Trump. Will they not be an impediment to President Biden's economic packages? And if so, won't Democrats need all the Republican support they can get to push their historic programs through? If you know of any history that provides more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective.